Uh, the rest of you, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis, first book of the Old Testament, first book of the Bible. On the duh side of things. Um, the season of Advent is, um, is simply the four weeks leading up to Christmas, right? What we're talking about this morning is Advent. That makes it sound like this is really... I don't know, fancy deal. It really just means the four Sundays before Christmas. Uh, we take as a church, as the church, in fact, um, we take four weeks to prepare for that. On the slightly deeper side of that is that it is a time where, um, where Christians enter into the longings of their hearts. What I mean by that is that uh, Advent is not simply about the baby Jesus. It's about the reigning Jesus. And so we take time during these four weeks to enter into our longings of the return of Jesus by entering into the longings of those who first awaited for Him. And so we're doing this, as Jason said, this year through a series we're calling Long Expected. And all that... Look at that. I like that. That's nice. Sorry. sorry, Distracted. Um, Squirrel! Um, We're doing that through a series called Long Expected, which, like like Jason said, takes takes its cue from that hymn, but basically uh, speaks to the fact that God's Messiah was expected for a long time. It wasn't like a newfangled thing. Like Christians didn't just kind of come up with this um, when Jesus came along. They're like, oh, look, let's call him Messiah. No, no, no. This was an expectation that had been going on for a long time. But why? You know, that's, that's something that can get missed in this season, right? This season's all about Jesus coming. The baby Jesus, right? But not really so much about the why. Why did He come and why expect Him in the first place? And so that, to that we turn to the text this morning and to a paradise law. So if you have your place in Genesis 3, I invite you to stand in honor of God's Word. That's our habit here. I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 15. And listen, um, we'll speak to this in a second. This is a text that, for some of us in the room, is going to just sound kooky, right? It's got some crazy stuff in it. What I'm going to ask you to do is to suspend a little bit of your disbelief for a minute um, and simply let it speak. This is God's Word, and it does speak to us. Hear it that way. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and and I was afraid because, because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of a tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman, the woman whom you gave to me to, to be with, she, she gave me the fruit of the tree and, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. 
And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall strike your head, and you shall strike his heel. This is God's word, given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, if, if, if your word didn't say things that challenged us, that... Um, shifted us from where we normally live, it wouldn't be your word. It would be our word. So Lord, we are thankful for uh, the scriptures that at times speak in ways that are, that are strange to us. And this is a text that seems exceedingly strange. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come, that you would open our hearts, help us to, to, to um, understand the truth of the gospel this morning. Would you preach it to us? Would you let uh, the one who speaks kind of fall to the back and, and let Jesus and his cross come to the fore? Because, Lord Jesus, you were long expected and we still expect you and ask that you would be present here among us even now. In Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Now, for the sake of this morning and, uh, and, and for time, honestly, and, and we've got a lot to talk about, so it might be a while, but uh, we, we started this morning in Genesis chapter 3. And so Genesis chapter 3, if, if we had time, we would have just kind of started at the beginning and gone from chapters 1, 2, and then into 3. Uh, because Genesis 3 is the, the, the beginnings of, of, um, of tension in this story. In fact, it's, it's kind of the beginning of tension in the entire Bible. Uh, this is the origination. This is where all tension comes from. Right here in this story. Uh, this chapter begins with a serpent, but the grand story of the Bible begins with God. So maybe it would be helpful to give a little context, right? Um, some of you may be familiar with this, but the story of the Bible begins with God creating all things from nothing. And He fills the earth with creatures. And the last of His creatures, humanity, He creates in His image. Uh, man and, and first, and, and then woman. And He places them in a garden of provision. A garden of provision, a place where they are perfectly provided for, and he places them there to be in a dependent relationship on him and to actualize his rule throughout the world through, through having kids and bringing order to the earth. In other words, they were in paradise, but it was to be a growing paradise. It wasn't meant to stay where it was. It was meant to spread over all of the earth. And what our passage today focuses on is not just the fact that we lost it. I think we all know that in some form or another. We lost it. But the fact that God promised right there at the point at which we lost it to make things right again. So, as always, there's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful for you. We're going to look at this in three ways this morning. We're going to look at descending into brokenness. We're going to look at rising to hope. And then we're going to look at what we're to expect in the first place. Okay? All right, let's start by descending into brokenness. As I get started, I want to simply say two things. One, first and foremost, you cannot overstate the impact of this story on the history of the world. You cannot overstate it. Everything we struggle with, everything we fear, everything, the, the, the reasons why we rage, all of them are found right here. This is the root of all of them. This day we are looking at here, the, the day that, that's covered in this story, is the single most terrible day in the history of the world. Now, the second thing that we need to talk about is, stems from that, because I've just implied that that story that we just read is historical. Right uh, now, listen. Not everyone in the room in this room believes the Bible, and even some of us who do have a difficult time believing this part of it. Right? I mean, 
It sounds an awful lot like myth. Talking snake, magic fruit, idyllic garden, naked people. Did I mention the talking snake? Like, it sounds like myth, not like history. But let me just say something real quick about that. If we grant that out of nothing, God created everything. Like in the last two chapters, God like spoke things into being. If we grant that God can do things like that, if we grant that God can do things like what's in the Gospels with raising the dead and, and multiplying fishes and loaves, what we see here is not impossible at all, okay? So what I want to just say is stay with me a little while, and hopefully some of this will make a little bit more sense, all right? So just hang with me. Now, this whole section begins talking about the serpent. In the original language, which this was written in, which was Hebrew, uh, the, word, the word serpent, uh, well, the, the serpent is described as crafty, okay? Crafty. He is crafty. Notice they don't say he's wise. They say he's crafty, and that's a very important distinction, okay? Um, how this crafty plays out is that he seems to be quite a dangerous wordsmith, Right? He argues on the basis of words. He speaks and he, he tends to, to mix things up a little bit. Now, that word that we translate crafty sounds almost exactly like the word used in chapter 2, verse 25, to describe Adam and Eve. They were naked. The word naked and the word crafty, um, because of the forms they're using, sound almost identical. Okay? Which Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke would say, uh, says that this both links these two passages, in other words, the creation story and the fall story, it links the two of them, but it also draws attention to the vulnerability of Adam and Eve. They are naked, or in the, in the Hebrew, Aramim, and the serpent is Aram, he is crafty. Which, it means that the very point at which they are most vulnerable, he is closest to them, okay? Now, for the serpent. Many of us, even if we've never read the Bible, assume that the snake is Satan, right? Now, it doesn't tell us that here, does it? No, it doesn't tell us that here. But it does in other places in the Bible, okay? In the New Testament, Romans 16, verse 20, and Revelations 12, 9, just to name a couple. Uh, they name this snake Satan. Uh, but what we do know of him in this passage, at least, is that he is an enemy, because he's setting himself up as a counter-authority. God has said one thing, and now here comes this snake crawling up or slithering up or whatever, and, he's, and he's, he's laying himself out as a counter-authority to God, questioning God's words, seeking to gain the allegiance of the woman. Come and, come and be on my team. And look how he does it right there in verse 1. He says, did God actually say you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? Now, the quick answer to that is no. Right? You could very easily just go, no. Like, of course he didn't say that, because that's not what he said. But note what the tempter is doing here. These two people exist in a garden that is all for them. In the, in the last couple of chapters, God puts them in this garden and he says, everything here is for you. Except there's one little thing over here. But what, is, what does the tempter do? He doesn't draw the attention to the everything. He draws it to the limit. He draws attention not to all they have, but to what they don't. He puts the spotlight on the limit that is on them. It's kind of like my favorite Christmas movie. I can't say I necessarily recommend it, but um, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. When, when Clark is out and he's made this, this amazing um, monument to futility in, in his house, right? And all these lights. And he's standing out there with his, with his family and they're all feeling awkward, but he's crying because it's so beautiful. And, and his father-in-law, Art, looks at the lights and he says, well, they're not twinkling. 
You know, it's like he sees this beautiful thing and he knows the one thing that's wrong with them in his mind. They're, they're not twinkling, you know. Thanks, Art. Uh, but what's going on here is that the tempter is, is pulling down and looking at the limits. And the woman follows him in this by saying that there's only one tree that they can't eat of and neither should they touch it. Now, God never said that. God never said they shouldn't touch it. So here's the woman, in fact, putting a greater limit, put, putting some, a hedge around what God did actually say. Now, just as an aside, what she does here is something that almost every one of us does. It amazes me how often we make, basis, we, we make judgments on what, well, the Bible says this or whatever, and it's not based on what we've actually read. It's based on what we think it must say or what the culture has told us it says, and it actually doesn't. As an aside, just let me say, go to the book, okay? Look to what God actually did say before we make judgments about Christianity on this or Christian ethics on this. Like, actually go to the book, okay? Let's see what God actually does say. Now, what he did say in this case was that there is one tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they aren't to eat of it. Now, what God did not say, listen to me close, especially if you're Christians, you need to hear this. What God did not say is that if you eat this fruit, you're going to know good from evil, That is not what he said. That's what the serpent said. God never said that. Apart from the name, there is nothing that would imply that. There's nothing that would imply you eat this fruit and it's magic. Now now you see everything and it's great. What the tree was, was a place of testing. Will humanity depend on God for for, for for their understanding of reality? Or will we try to create our own? The tree is a place of testing. Not a place of magic. It's not a place where we go and we suddenly get knowledgeable, okay? What God does say, though, is that failing here will bring death. Now, physical death is certainly in view, but there's also a spiritual death. It's not just that they're going to die, because we know that that's not exactly the case because they eat the fruit and like nobody keels over, right? They're still around. So there's also a spiritual death in, in view, a break in relationship with God, a life less than what we were made for, and then ultimately judgment for breaking that relationship. Now, some of you are thinking like, okay, here he goes. Like, this is what Christians always do. They spiritualize things so they can make it more palatable. I know, but listen. One of the things that Jesus said when he came, he said, I came that they might have life and have it to the full. And he is talking to people who have pulses. Okay? They're living. So the life that he's talking about doesn't just mean your heart beating in your chest. It means life. True life. The life that we lost. Okay? It is at this point that the serpent makes his biggest challenge. The, the, the woman says, look, look, I, he, he said, you can't, can't eat it, can't touch it, you're going to die. And the serpent says this. Uh, let me summarize. He says, no, uh You know, like, God's holding you back. God's holding you back. These limits aren't for your good. They're for His good. He doesn't want you to accomplish your potential. You should be free to pursue whatever you want to do. Does that sound familiar? should. That's pretty much our cultural narrative. The serpent claims to know God's motives. He challenges God's word. And then he sets himself up as a rival. And so the choice before... Before Adam and Eve, and we'll get to the point. We'll get to it in a second. That Adam's actually there with her. But the point is that that the choice for Adam and Eve was either to turn from God and trust the serpent, or to believe God and forget the serpent. But she eats, 
And then she gives some to her husband who is with her. And I wish we had time to really go into exactly what, what the implications of that are. We don't. Uh, but then he eats. Now notice this. The woman eats the fruit. Nothing happens. Right? Nothing happens. He eats the fruit. Everything breaks. Everything breaks. We'll get to that, like the why of that, in just a second. So stay with me. Uh, Look down at verse 7, because we're going to see how they break. It says this, The eyes of both them were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. All right, what the heck is happening here? All right, let me try and clear this up. To get at this, we we need to understand a little more of what was going on before this, okay? Biblical scholars will tell you that God had established what was called a covenant with Adam and Eve. Now, that, that's really, um, that's, a, that's a word that simply means this. It's a relationship bound by promises. Now, all relationships are bound by promises to some extent. They're either implicit or explicit. These were explicit promises made. Okay? The, the, the promises were simply this. Their promise was to not eat of that one tree. God's promise? Give them everything. Like, there, there's your promise. You eat of this, you're going to die. You don't eat of it, you're going to live. It's really simple, right? <laughs> really simple. And, and Adam and Eve made, were in this covenant as representatives of all humanity. That's why when Adam eats, he's the, the representative, what, what the Scripture will call in other places like the head. He, he's the representative of all of mankind, so that when he eats, that's when everything breaks. Okay, And their, their, their promise... Their promise to not eat of the tree basically looks like this. All right? we, we were made for dependence on God. And when I say dependence on God, I don't just mean physically. Like we were made for God to provide us with food to eat. We were made for dependence on Him. To us, knowing good and evil seems kind of benign, doesn't it? Ethical judgments, like don't we do that all the time? And we're asking our kids to do that kind of thing. Like that seems kind of benign, but it's not. It's not benign at all. Look at, look at me. Creating an ethical system, creating a system of knowing what is good and evil implies, implies a kind of comprehensive knowledge, a knowledge of everything, because all ethical systems are absolute. They're all absolute. I mean, think about it. You're like, well, what about relativism? Relativism is itself an absolute, because it implies, or states specifically, uh, that everyone should be a relativist. It's an absolute. It's also a kind of brand of Western imperialism, but we don't have time to get into that either, okay? The problem is, is that you and I don't have comprehensive knowledge, do we? Do you know everything perfectly? Of course you don't. And so creating an ethical system on that basis is is madness. Now what that means is not that relativism is right and that no ethical system can take precedence, but it means what it means is that we have to depend on God for right and wrong, for good and evil. We have to, it has to be revealed to us. It has to come through revelation. He has to tell us what it means for humans to flourish, what right and wrong is. And he has to do it because he is the only one with comprehensive knowledge of things. He is the only one that knows all things. And so the tree was a test to see if we would trust him with that or not. And we didn't. We didn't. We betrayed God. And I know it seems like just breaking a rule, but it isn't. We were made to depend on Him. He graciously gave us all things. And instead, we turned from Him. We called Him a liar. We believed the snake that God didn't have our good in mind at all. And when we did that, two things happened. Suddenly, we were guilty of betraying God. Okay? 
And we knew it. <laughs> That's why they hid, right? But also, we were ashamed. Shame, right? Shame comes, friends, when we fail to meet a standard that we hold inside of our heads, right? I have a standard, this is how I should be, I don't meet it, there's shame. And what always comes with shame is hiding. And that is what happens here. We're afraid of others seeing that we can't meet our internal standard, and so we hide, and thus, so did Adam and Eve. Thus the fig leaves, which I'm sure were not entirely comfortable, okay? The results of that shame and that guilt is that all of a sudden, these two... These two, man and wife, who were naked and unashamed, who had perfect intimacy, unbroken relationship between one another, between God, even bet- uh, between them and creation, are now hiding from another, from one another, and they're hiding from God in fear. And now, if that were the end, that would be insanely tragic. But it's not the end. Now, one would think that when God came on the scene, He would come on the scene like we would if we were betrayed, right? He'd be bringing the pain. Like, that's what we, when we're betrayed, we're going to make somebody pay for it. But let's look at how he called them to account. Look down at verses 8 to 13. God comes for his evening walk. Can you think about that for a minute? God is walking in the garden in the evening, like with them. God's presence, unmediated, direct, intimate. This is what they knew. But now, because of what they did, his presence meant for them fear, and they hid. And then God calls to them. Why? Why does God call to them? I mean, think about it. The Bible's pretty clear. God knows everything. Dark's not dark to him. You know, read the Psalms a little bit. He's got comprehensive knowledge, like I just said. Why was he calling to them? Basically this. He's calling them into relationship. This is hard, so listen close. You and I still, on a fundamental level, believe the lie that the serpent told. We believe it. That is why we view God as kind of this divine rule maker, right? But we weren't made for rules. We were made for Him. He calls to them because He is calling them back into relationship with Him. They have broken relationship. They have turned from Him towards the snake. We're going to do our own thing. He is coming into the garden and He is calling them back to Himself. And when they show up, a little game begins. The game is called passing the buck, right? Now, Adam, just a few verses ago, when God presented his wife to him, he bursts into song, praising God, and pray, this is the most beautiful thing ever, and this is, isn't this great? And now, now, he tells God that either God is to blame for all this, or Eve is. He accuses God. He says, the woman you gave me, her fault. Her fault. And then the woman passes it down to the serpent, right? Not my fault, his fault. And there's a snake, like, uh, I got nothing. You know, so there's nobody left. But all of a sudden, there's conflict, right? The last thing that God said in creation, He created all things, and right before He rested, He looked over all of creation and said, Very good. It's the best ever. Love what I did. And now that very goodness has been twisted into conflict everywhere. Everything has broken, and not just for Adam and his wife. Listen, their betrayal here affected all of us. And we see this play out in the Scriptures. Like, in the very next chapter, it plays out in their kids. And by, by, by the time you reach just a couple chapters more, the Bible's saying that the, 
all the thoughts of all of our hearts were only evil all the time. Like, what? Now, some of you are like, that's a, that's a bit of an exaggeration. No, 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 not at all. Not if you define evil the way God does, which is living in independence from him. It affected all of us. We were fooled into believing a lie, and that lie became the norm for us. It became the default. You and I don't have to be convinced anymore that God isn't for us. We automatically believe that. We don't have to be convinced that, that we should be able to do what we want when we want the way we want to. That's our default. That's our default. Our starting point is that we can be like God and that we must be. But God's response is incredible. Look down at how we're called to trust. We broke covenant. We broke relationship. We betrayed him. And here's how he responds. After saying what he says to the serpent, he finishes it with this in verse 15. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring. He's going to strike your head. You're going to strike his heel. Okay? If you check down, I need you to check back in because this is really amazing. All right? What we deserved at that point is judgment. I don't think anyone would argue that. God had never done anything wrong. We betrayed him, broke not just his law, but his heart. But he doesn't judge us. He holds out hope. Here's what I mean. There are two promises here. The first is that God will sovereignly change the situation. Did you notice that? That's when he says, I will put, I will do this. What he says is not, you go figure this out. You ruined everything. Go make it right. When you're done, come back and we'll talk about things. Like, it's not the way he handles it. It's the way we handle it. It's not the way he handles it. And it wouldn't make sense even if he had said that, right? Because if we're made to be dependent on God for him to send us off to go fix it independently of him, it just makes the problem worse. It's not, it's not any better. When he talks about the two offspring there, what, what he means is not... Uh, he doesn't mean people and snakes. He's talking about fallen humanity, the offspring that Satan has brought about, and a renewed humanity. Uh, so God will not let our alienation from him stay. But he will save us. He will rescue us from the mess that we've brought on ourselves. But that isn't all. When he talks about that offspring, he, he, he talks about, I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. And then he, he switches. Right? Offspring is kind of a... It's a generic term, right? That can, that can be a plural more often than not. It is a plural. Uh, but then he moves into the singular. He's going to strike your head and you're going to strike his heel. How is it that God can say, I'm going to fix things, but you're going to fix things? How can he say that humanity will do this, but I'm going to do it? And why will it come through suffering? Did you see that? Look down there at verse 15 again. Because it says that Satan's going to be crushed, like his head's going to be stricken, but it will come through suffering. Someone else will be struck or crushed or bruised, depending on your translation, okay? But someone is going to get wounded in doing this. God meets us at our betrayal, and then he promises that he will fix what we've broken, that our guilt and our shame won't have the last word. This promise... Uh, called by scholars uh, the covenant of grace, kind of a, a second promise, is the foundation of our long-expected hope of rescue. So when we talk about why are we celebrating Advent, why are we celebrating something we call long-expected, this is how long. It started right here, okay? And I want to bring this home to us this morning by helping us with what to expect. Let's look at an outrageous grace, can we? 
Have you ever thought about the fact that even the, the reality that we're talking about long expected is crazy? Why are we expecting anything? The only thing, according to Genesis 3, we should be expecting is judgment. <laughs> and not just in Genesis 3. I mean, if we honestly look at our own lives, the same is there. The only thing we should be expecting is to bear our betrayal of God. He owes us nothing, but He gives us everything. And the reason that we don't fully grasp this is because we look at this story, and we think of this story in similar terms of like breaking curfew, right? Breaking curfew? Uh, like, like, why is God all ticked off about eating fruit? Like, what is the big deal with that? See, we don't get it. The fruit wasn't the issue. <laughs> the issue was the turning to something else to be our trust. It wasn't like breaking curfew. It was more like adultery. We didn't break curfew. We cheated on someone who had loved us perfectly, who had only sought our good, who had given us everything we needed. It's a betrayal of a relationship, okay? Okay? And because we don't see the problem as being that bad, we think we can fix our problem, right? Our normal fixes are things like environment, just being better, we can just be better, or having more freedom. Right? Those, those are three of our big ones. I mean, think about it. You and I know that the world is jacked. We, don't, we can walk out our door and just watch CNN. We, we don't need a convincing of that. I don't have to convince you that something is wrong with us or the world, okay? If you really need help with that, just go drive in rush hour traffic on 495, okay? Take a, take a trip up to Northern Virginia. That'll help you. The, the thing is that we think we can make it better. We know the world is jacked. But we're like, we can, we can make it better. Listen, Adam had the best possible environment, a world of perfect provision where God walked with him in the cool of the day. He was sinless, which means he couldn't have been any better and he had freedom to do anything but eat from one tree. <laughs> and it didn't matter. It didn't matter. The entire point of this narrative, and listen to me, because this is, this is true whether or not you think this is historical, okay? The entire point of this narrative is that these fixes won't work. God must save. And that, friends, is why Jesus came. Jesus is the long-expected answer to these promises. You and I can't cover over our guilt and we can't get rid of our shame. Why? Because they're not illusions. They actually exist. They are really there. We have betrayed God, all of us, and we don't match even the standard in our own heads, better yet what God says we're supposed to be, perfectly loving God and neighbor. So what we couldn't do, God did for us in Jesus. Jesus is both God and man, so he answers the question, how is it that God can say, you're going to do it, but I'm going to do it? He did it by becoming one of us. Then he lived the life that we couldn't, blameless before God, and he died as a sinner. What does that mean? That, that means that he took our place. He took our place, paying for the, the, bearing the weight of our betrayal before God. And then he rose again. And when we place our faith in him, instead of in our own effort... Our guilt is taken from us. He died for it. We don't have to. But not just that. Our shame is taken for us. It's not just that he died, but that he lived. You can't meet that standard. And it's okay because Jesus met the standard for you. You don't have to pretend anymore. 
We are not only not guilty, but righteous before God because of Jesus. That was what was long expected. That is what the baby in the manger is about. Not just about, isn't this great? God gives gifts. Yeah, but what's the nature of the gift? God coming into the world to put an end to our sin, an end to our shame, and an end to evil in the world. That's the gift, and that is what Jesus did. And it's outrageous. But let's also talk about a final end, okay? Sin and shame are not fully removed, are they? By the fact that half of you have your eyes down right now, I'm going to assume that you know exactly what I'm talking about. That's, that's what we are longing for Jesus to come and do, to return and put a final end to these things. The problem is that you and I don't really believe that he's the only one who can do it. Do we? We still think environment will do it. Or education. Or money. Or democracy of all things. You know why we think that? Because many of us, Christian or non-Christian, don't really believe we're that broken. We don't really believe we're that broken. You know what you get when you give someone a great environment, a good education, money, and self-governance? You get well-adjusted, well-educated, wealthy, empowered brokenness. That's what you get. Now listen, if you seem less broken to you, maybe even to others, let me suggest, if that is the case, like if you seem less broken than some from a different lifestyle or life situation, uh, can I tell you, that is simply because your sin and brokenness is just more culturally acceptable than theirs. Not because you have less of it. I'm not saying that environment and education and all that stuff, that those things are bad. We're made for them. Like, I want everyone in my city to have, um, to, to have a great education, a safe environment, economic well-being, and just governance. But we can never be in the illusion, never, that such things will save us. Okay? Now, let me leave you with two takeaways, two things, two things to take with you, okay? First, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me invite you to something. You have doubts about what I've said. Of course you do. There's not a person in this room who doesn't have doubts about what I just said, okay? At some point, we have doubts. But here's the thing. We doubt from a position of already secure belief, okay? There's no neutral ground. You doubt something being true because you already believe something else is true, okay? So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. What I'm going to ask you to do this morning is to doubt your doubts with the same standards that you doubt what I just said. You follow me? In other words, doubt what you currently hold to with the same standard by which you just doubted everything I just said, okay? Doubt your doubts. Because here's the thing. Christianity does not offer an ethic to do. It offers a person to trust. Promise from the beginning of human history who came to reconcile you to God. If we're right, the problem is way worse than you think. But God is way more loving than you ever dreamed. Okay? Second one. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, let's talk about your guilt and your shame for a minute. Can we? Listen. We've all got it, so you don't have to go pretending that you don't have it, okay? If you're trusting in Christ this morning, then what I've said is true. And Jesus has borne your guilt, and he has covered your shame. So why do you still cling to it? Now, some of you are like, 
like, Rick, I don't know how to let go. I've had it so long, it's all I know. Here's the key, guys. Be known. Half of us in this room walk around through our days and, and nobody knows us. Some of us in our marriages, our spouses don't even know us. And when they try to get to know us, we react in anger or frustration or just back off. Dealing with this on my own. No, you're not. No, you're not. That's the problem. You weren't made to deal with it on your own. Be known. If the gospel is true and Jesus has secured for you the smile of God, then nothing you reveal can take that away. Nothing you reveal can take that away. You didn't earn it, and you can't have it taken from you. It's, look, it, it's a lot like being a kid when, when you're growing up, and you're in a dark room, and you are convinced, convinced what is in the corner is a monster, and it is going to eat you if you get from under the covers, right? For some reason, the covers are safe. Like, they can't see me. Like, I don't know what that... Apparently, they have no senses. But if you come out from the covers, they get you. And then, as soon as you turn on the light... It's just a chair with some clothes on it. So long as the lights are off, it will always be a monster. But when the lights come on, you'll see it's just clothes on a chair. And listen, you're not alone. I've got it too. Look, here it is. At root, more often than not, I act like a scared 12-year-old boy who was teased in school. I overpromise and I underdeliver for people all the time. All the time. I often think I can win people's love, but I'm afraid that I won't. And I am terrified often that when you realize that I will fail you, and I will, that you're going to leave. That's me. That's me. But here's the thing the gospel is true. And I can be known as that guy because I don't have to match up to the ideal image in my head. I don't have to be great for you. Jesus was great for you. I don't need you to think I'm great. I want you to think He's great. I'm broken just like the rest of you. A good friend of mine says, there's Jesus, and then there's everybody else. There's Jesus and there's everybody else. Guess what? I'm one of the everybody else. And so are you. And so are you. Look to Him. Friends, the power of shame and guilt is broken. It's broken in Christ. So stop living under it and be known. Because during this season, though we await... During, during this season, we await the coming of the One who did not just atone for sin's penalty, did not just break sin's power, but who, when He comes back, will remove its very presence. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is into that that we long and we lean into this morning. For my friends here, whether they've walked with You um, as long as they can remember or they're not yet walking with You, I pray that You would help us to believe the Gospel this morning. Not a single one of us, not a single one of us, perfectly trusts that you have covered our guilt and our shame. Lord, you are the only answer for it. Right at the point at which everything broke, that is where you made that promise and you answered it in Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts to believe that this morning. 
and direct our attention as we lean into this season, thinking about the coming of the Lord, the baby in the manger, that we would never forget the man on the cross. Because they are the same. And without that cross, there would have been no manger. There would have been no reason for Him to come. So give us grace to keep mindful of that in the midst of our busyness this season, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you stand with me, please. You'll find printed in your bulletins our confession.